pray. Heavenly Father, help us to understand your world and your word that we might live as your people in this age. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was 20, I discovered that I was a Christian secularist, which is a contradiction in terms. You can't be both, but I was. I became a Christian when I was about 13, and I remember getting into terrible trouble at school the next year over the causes of the Rum Rebellion. For those of you who have been educated in the New South Wales Department of Education of recent years, let me tell you, the Rum Rebellion was a rebellion of the New South Wales Corps in 1908, where they got rid of Governor Bly for a couple of years, and I'm not going to tell you any more. I'm just sorry that you've had to go through the New South Wales Department of Education. Ooh, I'm standing in the room, aren't I? Better be careful. Anyway, in my history exam when I was 14, the question was asked, what are the causes of the Rum Rebellion? And I don't remember any of the exams I suffered at school, um, but I do remember this one quite clearly, quite vividly, uh, because I tried to give a Christian answer now that I was a Christian. And so I explained the importance of sin lying behind rebellions of any character and uh, behind people who uh, uh, suppressed rebellions as well. I explained the importance of sin, understanding how humans since the time of Adam and Eve had been sinning, and I gave a great exposition of the doctrine of sin, uh, both original and practiced in the life of the people of New South Wales. Not having time to cover the whole topic in my exam question, I omitted pretty well any reference to Governor Bly or the New South Wales Corps or the actual rebellion. Uh, to say that my teacher was not amused uh, would be a gross understatement. He gave me such a dressing down, I can actually still remember the spot in the hallway where he did it. Uh, I was sure the cane was soon to follow because it was in the days when we did get caned. Uh, he thought I was making fun of history, that I was making fun of him, and I was assured of terrible consequences if I ever answered school questions like that again. So Christianity from that day on was omitted from my studies until I was about 20, and in my last year of uh, university there, I was uh, in a social theory course, and I was being taught sociology by a secularist lecturer a nice man, and as the year wore on, I found myself being persuaded by him to the approval of sinfulness. Inch by inch, lecture by lecture, I was being persuaded the morality that I was learning in church, the morality that I saw in the Bible, was wrong. Uh, things that I'd come to understand as sinful were, according to the lecturer and now my own understanding, were actually right and socially beneficial and needed to be fought for as part of the new permissive society of social justice. How did it happen? How did I get persuaded into this totally different view, the contradictory views in my own head? So I retraced my steps back through the lectures. I actually went back through each lecture, going back and back and back to see where I'd parted company with the lecturer. I went back through the textbook, because we were working on a textbook in that course, to find where the contradiction in my thinking took place. And I found it in the very first lecture, 
and in the introduction to the book, which is, of course, one of the chapters no one bothers reading, but there it was in the introduction. It was a difference of basic philosophy. I hadn't even noticed it when we started because I agreed with it. It was what you do with studies. The contradiction was not simply between church and university or between me and the lecturer. The contradiction was in here. I, I was agreeing with him and I was agreeing with the Bible and the two were contradictory and I agreed with both. For since the horror of the Rum Rebellion, I had totally imbibed not just secular history, but secularist history and secularism as well. No wonder my history teacher was so angry with me. He really was angry because I was unwittingly challenging his whole worldview. I was unwittingly challenging his education and his teaching and his profession. What I didn't realise at the time, because he was the authority and I was just a kid, what I didn't realise at the time was that he was censoring me and forbidding my view and worldview and understanding. Naturally, by the way, it was a church school. But all this goes back to the difference between secular and secularists. They're two related words with subtly different meanings, one very Christian and one very anti-Christian. But people keep slipping between the two words as if they're saying the same thing. So on your outline, I've actually put definitions for you straight out of the dictionary, that secular is a 14th century word, meaning belonging to this age, belonging to this world. Secularism is a different word that came in 1851. Take secular first. It's an old word in English, coming from Latin via the French into Middle English. It means now. It means of this age, of this world. Not of eternity, not of heaven, but of this world in the here and now. It can be a very religious word. So, for example, the Roman Catholic Church has secular priests. So if you think secular is anti-religious, how can you have a secular priest? Because it's not anti-religious. They have two kinds of priests. They have priests in monasteries and, and monastic orders like Dominicans or Franciscans, and they have priests in parishes who aren't connected to any monastery or, or, or any monastic order. And these ones who are in the parishes are called secular priests because they're not locked up in some sacred holy place, they are out in the world. They are in this age, in the, in the common, if you like. Secular, therefore, means simply of this age. Mundane, if you know what mundane actually means, it's of this world. Now, in the mid-19th century in England, an atheist group of social revolutionaries came up with a new word, secularism. 1851, we actually know when it came about, the rejection of all forms of religious faith and worship. Quite a different meaning. There's not many words you can say, I know when it came, but we even know the man who invented it, George Holyoke. Uh, he was a very clever politician, was George. He wanted to keep religious people on side 
in order to bring about social change. So he didn't want to use, didn't want to invent a word that was all religion is wrong. So he, he defined it in such a way that it just ignored religion. But his coy rejection of religion was seen for what it was by his followers. And so uh, Charles Bradlaugh, who was a, again a great social revolutionary of the mid 19th century England, made the anti-religious implications explicit for everybody. Now, this confusion between these two words, secular and secularism, one which is acknowledging this created order, this world, the other rejecting God completely, this confusion is directly, debate, directly connected to the debates in Australia today. I mean, let me ask you to think for a moment or two. Is Australia secular? Point B, 2B, I'm on now, if you're following. Is Australia secular? Most people would answer yes. For repeatedly, journalists and teachers tell us that Australia is secular and religion has no place in, in public life in particular. They're horrified that our Prime Minister is Pentecostal and the previous, uh, one of the previous premiers, Mike Baird, was an evangelical, or that the previous um, vice-chancellor of the University of Sydney, Michael Spence, was Anglican and ordained, or that Andrew Scipione, the police commissioner, the previous, he was a Baptist. They're horrified by this. How can a Baptist non-drinker be a police commissioner? How can an evangelical Bible-believing man be the premier and rule for everybody? It's, they don't mind if the leaders are formal and conventional members of religion. They just object if they believe the religion they're members of. So they'll say, well, this one's a Roman Catholic, that one's a Presbyterian, this one's an Anglican. But, you know, they don't go, they don't believe it, they just, you know. But when someone actually believes Christianity, it's unacceptable. But is Australia secular? Let me make two observations for you. First is the difference between Australia the nation and the Australian government. See, journalists and politicians are power mad. They, they don't understand that Australia is more than Canberra and New South Wales is more than Macquarie Street. See, Australia is what Australians do and what Australians are. It's not what politicians make judgments about. Australia is the country women's association. Australia is the local football club. It's the, it's the Boy Scouts. It's the Girl Guides. It's the, it's the suburban coffee shop. It's, it's your family. It's my This is Australia. It's got nothing to do with parliaments here, there or anywhere. So when you say Australia is secular, that's rubbish. The most Australians have connection with religion. There are very few irreligious Australians, maybe 30%. We'll see in a census soon. But the majority have connections with religions of some kind. The secular matters are what we've restricted our governments to. Our governments are only interested in secular matters. Roads, drains, uh, defence, economy, uh, electricity, uh, hospitals, just things of this world. The governments, we say, are not allowed to make any judgments about the things of God. 
but they are of this world. They're, they're secular governments, not secularist governments. That's a different thing. And we don't have separation of church and state. Well, do we? Do we have separation of church? Should we? Well, with Australia, the answer is yes and no. Yes, but not in the way the secularists think. Yes, but not in the same way as America. America's got a different philosophy of separation of church and state than Australia. Yes, we don't have a state church like England, where the Church of England is the official church of the land. We don't have an official church of the land. But Australian government and Australian constitution still recognises religion. The Australian Constitution commences in its very first sentence by referring to the blessings of Almighty God. It's not a godless constitution when its opening sentence includes the blessings of Almighty God. Parliament commences every day with the Lord's Prayer. It's not irreligious when it starts with the Lord's Prayer, although one wonders sometimes when they're praying it whether they actually understand what they're praying. Now, our defence force employs chaplains. Uh, religious instructions is mandated in our public schools. Now, I could go on and on and on with illustrations like this. Uh, the most important one that all Christians should know about is the High Court ruling on the dogs case in 1981. I don't know anything about the dogs case. It actually is what you really do need to know about. Because in 1981, six of the seven High Court judges ruled that it was all right for the government to give financial aid to non-governmental religious schools. The Constitution was against having one religion, but it was not against having religion. See, in America, it's against having religion. In Australia, it's against having one religion. Provided the money is given equally and evenly to any religion who wants it, then the government can give money to religion because Australia is not anti-religion. It's secular, but it's not secularist. That difference is huge. And it's been established by the High Court in 1981 on the DOGS case. The DOGS stands for Defence of Government Schools just in case you wanted, but all you've got to remember is dogs. But the issue of... So the issue, is Australia a secular nation? No, we ha it's a nation that has a secular government, but not a secularist government. But the secularists keep on having a slippage of the two words, merging the two words as if they're the same thing and slipping across from secular to secularism. Let me try and illustrate the difference further for you. It's, it's, I know it's hard to get your head around this difference when you first hear it, but it's quite important. I'm, I'm going to borrow a series of illustrations uh, from a book by Francis Schaeffer. If you ever remember Francis Schaeffer's writings back in the, I don't know when, uh, there's a book called The Escape for a Reason. I haven't read it lately. Uh, I haven't read it for a long, long time, but I'm pretty sure that's where I got the illustration from, so I'm just giving, I'm stealing, so I want to acknowledge my stealing here. Uh, imagine we live 
in a two-storey house. Right. Excuse my schoolboy art. It's about as good as I can do on drawing a two-storey house. Uh, notice that this is, our house is a Christian house. That is, we have two different things happening in our world. We have the lower floor, which is the world, this age, and we have an upper floor, that is heaven, the spiritual, the sacred, the, the gospel, the Christian, right? And there, there are these two things that we have in our world. Downstairs, the secular age is concerned with food and shelter and friends, neighbours, education, work, mowing the grass. The upstairs, the spiritual floor, is our relationship with God, with heaven. It's our prayer, it's our singing it's, uh, of hymns, it's our, it's our Bible reading. Now see how different that is to a mystic's house, where... Everything really is spiritual in the mystic's house. The, the New Age mysticism, the ancient Greek philosophies, the, the Eastern religions are all part of this mystic house idea. And all this world's cares are in the basement and unimportant. You shove as much, they, they don't really count. Uh, they're really totally unimportant. In fact, some of the mystics, like Hare Krishnas or the Christian science, don't believe there's a basement at all. They think that this world is an illusion, um, a maya uh, sent to distract you from spiritual reality. All that matters is your spirituality, which explains the dreadful Hare Krishna food, amongst other things. You see, now Paul, he wrote against this in his day. He said to Timothy, uh, that it's the doctrine of demons that forbids marriage and requires abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving for those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. See, we Christians are very secular. We believe in this world because God created this world. Whereas if you don't believe in creation, you believe everything is spiritual, then you become the mystic, you see, and you think the food doesn't matter, the house doesn't matter. You can live in, in abject poverty because it doesn't matter. Whereas we think the secular does matter, this world does matter. But then the opposite, the other side of the coin is the secularists. <laughs> they, you see, don't have any upstairs. They've shoved everything spiritual into the attic, which is never entered. That's where all religious weirdos are to be kept, or stuck away in the attic, not to be seen, heard, or it's like the, you know, the mad auntie. You just put her up there and don't let her out, don't let anyone know that she even exists. Everything is only of this world. So the man who invented the word secularism, Mr Hollyoke, he said secularism has three essential principles. One, the improvement of this life by material means. Two, that science is the available providence for man. Providence is something God has, but now man has it, you see, and it's found in science. And three, that it's good to do good the good of the present life. And it's good to seek that good. All he's interested in is about this world. Because 
He doesn't say, the other world doesn't exist. But that's what he meant. Well, okay, enough of what is secularism. It's important, though, for us to note that this secularism, which is dominating our public life, is incoherent and inadequate. For those secularists pride themselves on their rational scientific thinking and look actually with pity upon us poor intellectuals, individuals who are here today. If they, they were here, and if you are a secularist here, try, try a little humility sometime, please, because we are looked upon with contempt for our religious views. We're just silly, superstitious people. In fact, Mr Dawkins says faith equals superstition. Their own world, though, is anything but coherent and adequate. Um, they, their own, they own public discourse. The schools, the universities, the media, the politics. Have you noticed, for example, in the pandemic, how science has been held up to us? You know, science is going to rescue us. The politicians are doing the right thing. They're following the science. But actually, science has done very little for us. It's done this vaccine, which we're having trouble getting hold of, I understand, and it's done genome tracing. But otherwise, everything that we're being told to do by our government is exactly what the government said 500 years ago. Martin Luther, see, he was a secular man, not a secularist. Martin Luther, he wrote a tract on what to do in a plague because he was actually facing a plague. And everything he tells to do is exactly what Mr. Mr. Morrison's doing. Same things. But if you read the public discourse, we're not following religion, we're following science. Pre-scientific religion gave the same advice. But do away with upstairs and your worldview won't work. I haven't got time to go into all this this morning. But I'm going to pick just two issues to show how it doesn't work, two pretty important ones, meaning and morality. First then, meaning, or rather meaningless, meaninglessness. Here are some secularists. Sorry for the speed of these quotes coming to you, but they are all famous men, great men, high authority. I'm not picking up the weirdos, you know, like those television shows where they find the weirdest kind of believing Texan that you've ever seen uh, and then make them say stupid things in the name of Christ and then, I'm not doing that. I'm picking some of the most famous academic intellectuals available on the secular scheme. So here is uh, Thomas Nagel who wrote a book. He was the professor of uh, philosophy and law at, the universe, at New York University. Right? It's a big name. He wrote a book, what, is, uh, what Does It All Mean?, which is the Introduction to Philosophy book. And he said, but what's the point of being alive at all? There's no point. It wouldn't matter if I didn't exist at all and if I didn't care about anything. But I do. That's all there is to it. He goes on, if life is not real, life is not earnest and the grave is its goal, perhaps it's ridiculous to take ourselves so seriously. On the other hand, if we can't help taking ourselves so seriously, perhaps we just have to put up with being ridiculous. See, what does it all mean? It means, the book finishes, life may be not only meaningless, but absurd. 
Here's the philosopher writing a book on what it all means. And the answer is, it's absurd. <laughs> it's not just him. Uh, take Richard Dawkins, the globe-trotting promoter of atheism. Uh, professor at Oxford University. Uh, he made three YouTubes that you can get on uh, video, video things uh, on the meaning of life, in which by the time you come to the end you discover there isn't any. He says, we reach out in our search for meaning until we suddenly realise it's we who actually provide the purpose in a universe which otherwise would have none. See, he concludes life has no meaning, life has no purpose, so make up your meaning, make up your purpose. Whatever meaning purpose you make up, that's your meaning and purpose. Ponder, friends, what it is that life has no meaning. Because when that's the case, you come to the atheist's dream. You see, without God, there's no meaning. Uh, that's something they're forced to accept. Because you see, if the world is a big bang accident, and that's all there is to it, then you and me and the whole world is an accident. Accidents don't have meaning. If, if it was made by God, well, it has God's meaning, God's purpose. But if it just happened, happenings don't mean anything. And if the happening doesn't mean anything, the people in the happening don't mean anything either. So they've had to admit there is no meaning without God. But ponder that further because if there's no meaning, there's no morality either. We're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here. Uh, without rhyme, without reason, we're just here. And you can't move from we're here to what we ought to do. It's a famous philosophical failure to say there is, therefore I ought. I mean, there is a lectern, therefore I ought to lean upon it, to clean it to kiss it, to wash it. To, what, what ought follows from there is? No ought follows from an is. It just is. You are. Therefore, you are. That's all you can conclude from that. So, I turn to the second question then of morality. For the secularists, you see, are amoral. Not immoral, that would mean wicked, but amoral, that is, without morality. So let's go back to Richard Dawkins and continue with him. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. People are very good at promoting Richard Dawkins and promoting his atheism, but they hardly ever draw out the fact that he doesn't believe there's such things as good and evil, right and wrong, bad and right. That doesn't exist. There's nothing wrong with a bit of pedophilia. He would be horrified with pedophilia. But logically, there's nothing wrong with it because there's no evil. It doesn't exist. Not in an accidental world. That changed to another uh, atheist, another secularist, Professor Joel Marx. 
He's Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of New Haven and uh, works as the Centre of uh, Bioethics at Yale University. So I'm not talking little people, I'm talking big names, big name people. In 2012, he published a book, Ethics Without Morals, in defence of amorality. <laughs> if you knew the history of old Joel Marx, that's kind of surprising because he spent most of his academic career arguing for morality as an atheist. Uh, he followed Kant, if you want to know how he was doing it. But then late in his career, in his late 50s, he made a big, he had a big epiphany, as he calls it, a, a terrible awakening to his secularist position. He actually says, I was a moral fool. Why? Well, here it is. My shocking epiphany was that the religious fundamentalists of all people, the loonies, are correct. Without God, there is no morality. What an astonishing thing for this man to discover late in his life, who had spent all his life at leading universities arguing the exact opposite. And so he became a Christian? No, don't be stupid, of course he didn't. You see, he wasn't converted to Christianity. That was unthinkable for him. I mean, he has no upstairs in his house. They're lunatics, they're, they're nutters. They won't have anything to do with them. They happen to be correct logically, but that doesn't make they're correct. It just means, it means I've got to throw away morality. So he had a choice. Throw away my atheism, throw away my morality. Morality went out the window. <laughs> Better to ditch it. Then, how do secularists account for morality? Well, of course, you can't find it just in philosophical argument. So they turn to psychological analysis. Here's another philosopher, Professor Jesse Prince, who's uh, now a professor at uh, New York University. And he argues, no amount of reasoning can engender a moral value because all values are at bottom emotional attitudes. The judgment that something is morally wrong is an emotional response. See, when I say pedophilia is wrong, I'm not saying it's actually wrong. I'm just saying I don't like it. I, I, I hate it. It makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't want that kind of thing. But it's not wrong, not in any absolute moral objective sense, because he says, actually, to have that, you'd have to have God. And we, we know there's no God, so there's no morality. So let me go back to the atheist's dream, which I, I actually think is a nightmare. See, without God, there's no meaning. Without God, there's no morality. But without morality, there's no justice. And without justice, all you've got left is power. Unrestrained power. And so what happens to law? And judges and justice and governments, well, <laughs> it's all just now social engineering. It's not a question of what's right and wrong. It's a question of how do we keep the society happy? And bread and games is the method. <laughs> it's as old as that. So how do we do this? Well, we just keep people fed, keep them comfortable. And, of course, ultimately... 
in that, then all government becomes tyranny. You want to know why we've got so much tyranny? Megalomaniacs of the 20th and early 21st century? This is why. It's secularism. It takes a while to work out the system, but there it is. Without an upstairs in their house, there's nothing other than this lifetime. There's no eternity in their worldview. There's only the life in the here and now. And there's only the grave to follow. It's like Ecclesiastes. We're living not under a ceiling in Ecclesiastes, but we're living under the sun, but it's the same kind of imagery that's being used. See, 3,000 years ago, Ecclesiastes understood uh, vanity of vanity, said the preacher, all is vanity. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, you know, under the, just this world only, and behold, it's all vanity. It's just a striving after wind. But the author of Ecclesiastes and the preacher, he knows that's not right, that there's got to be something more that he's searching after. And so we read in chapter 3 of that book, that he made everything beautiful in its time and he has put eternity into man's hearts yet so that he cannot find out what has done from the beginning to the end. That is, we've still got this sense of eternity because God's made us with this sense in us. Not so that we can understand it, but we just know there's more to life than just this life. You can feel all the people some of the time and some of the people all of the time, but you can't feel all the people all of the time, can you? Have you noticed how stupid, utterly stupid, has come these people who want to be telling us that, whoops, whoops, that's really making a mess, who want to be telling us that, that what we're going to do with this mice plague, I'll hold it, what are we going to do with this mice plague? Take that away, thanks, yeah. What we're going to do with this mice plague is capture them and release them somewhere else. Right? But we've got to stop killing them. Right? At that point, you realise the animal rights people are balmy. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? Because billions of our food eaten by these mice, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Well, similarly, there comes a point at which you say there's no good, there's no bad, there's just... There's just people's opinions, just values, just emotions. You know, like, there's something wrong with this. Eternity is in our hearts. We know there is something to life. So, what do we do? Well, Professor Nagel sadly wrote another book. I say sadly because it was called The Last Word. And I'll give you the quote I had to you earlier where he said, there's no point to life. It wouldn't matter if I did or I didn't exist, or if I didn't care about anything, but here's eternity in the last sentence, you see. But I do. That's all there is to it. Logically, I shouldn't care, but I do. Doesn't make sense to him. But in the last word, he wrote, I'm talking about the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true and they're made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent, well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. I, it's that I hope there is no God. 
I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. See, he doesn't want an upstairs and a downstairs. He wants to live in a single floor. He doesn't want a two-storey house. He just wants a one-storey house. And so he makes his philosophy to fit. And it doesn't fit. It screamingly doesn't fit. Because in the end he has to say, life in my single-storey house is absurd. But I'll still take the money. See, within the confines of the lower story, we may be conscious that there is an upstairs there, but we can't discover what it's about. Because God has chosen not to let us know. And so I finally come, you'll be glad to know, to the Bible. <laughs> and to Jacob's ladder. See, in chapter 11 of Genesis, oops, before we get to Jacob's ladder, there's the Tower of Babel. Where people, united together, combined humanity, tried to build their way to heaven tried to find out from the lower floor what was up there in the upper floor. And they built this tower, went up and up and up. And then the Bible says God came down to see what they did. They hadn't got very far because he still had to come down to check them out. And when he saw what they were doing, he prevented them from getting there. Uh, just as the Apostle Paul explains it in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, he says, In the wisdom of God... The world didn't know God by wisdom. God's wisdom is you're never going to find out by your cleverness. Arrogant humans keep thinking that they can find God on their own terms, that they can discover God, that they can hold God to account, that they can master theology, that they can build a tower that will go to heaven. But God chooses never to be found out that way. See, you don't know anything about me unless I tell you. If you can't know anything about me unless I tell you, what makes you think you can know anything about God? Unless he tells you. And there I come to the ladder. Because <laughs> there's Jacob. Immoral, lying, ambitious, greedy, godless, thief. From a dysfunctional family all alone in the world as he flees for his life from his, the murderous threats of his, of his brother, whom he had just stolen his birthright and inheritance from. And there in the wilderness, he falls asleep on a stone. And while he's asleep, God gives him this vision of a ladder going up and down from heaven to earth. And on the ladder, angels going up and down. And then God speaking, appearing to him and assuring him, him of all people, assuring him that the promises given to Abraham and the promises given to Isaac are now going to be given to him. That the whole of human history is going to come from him. That he is going to be the touchstone. The nations of the world will be blessed by being blessed through Jacob. It's a weird story, friends, really is, because here's a family, and this man of all the, the worst of the family, a family of Bedouins, of, of tent dwellers, three, four thousand years ago, who go around saying, you know, the whole of human history is just going to come from my family. You can see why they want to put him in an attic, right? He's nuts. 
So, I mean, that's megalomaniac to think that your family is going to be the family which the whole of human history and the whole of future of humanity hangs on. But that's what he was told by God, and that's what he believed, and lo and behold, here we are today. And here we are all around the world today. He built this monument, but you can't find it. You can't find a stone which has got carved in it, Jacob slept here. But the man's vision of God is the God, vision that God gave to man. For that ladder, that ladder opened up the house of God. That ladder was the gate to heaven. But it turns out that ladder was, no, was, was none other than Jesus, the descendant of Jacob, through whom the world has access to heaven. For as we read in our second reading in John chapter 1, Jesus told the disciples that they would see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a ladder, but on the Son of Man. For in the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can see that human wisdom could never see. We can see the house of God. We can see the gate to heaven. We can see the salvation of mankind and the judgment of the world. Because you see, the thing that the gulf between God and us is not lack of information, but our sinfulness and God's judgment. And Jesus deals with those. Sadly, you see, my picture of the two-storey Christian house was actually wrong. I hope you thought it was wrong. I hope you saw it was wrong because it was wrong. You see, I left out the ladder. What's the point of living in a two-storey house if you can't get from the lower storey to the up storey and the up storey to the lower storey? You've got to have a ladder, haven't you? You've got to have a staircase. You've got to have some way. And that was my problem, you see. That was my problem at university. I was living in a two-storey house without a ladder, without a staircase. One part of me was thinking Christian thoughts, the other part of me was thinking the world's thoughts, and the two could never be put together. And when you do that, it means the meaning of God plays no part in the world's affairs. That you live in two worlds which are not really connected in any way at all. And so our secular world, our work, our family, has no meaning. No, no, the gospel of Jesus links the two worlds into one world with upstairs informing and enlightening the downstairs. And so, well, actually, I found a better picture than one I could draw. I like that one a lot better, right? Obviously, an advertisement for attic ladders. Um, but I like it a lot better because, you see, where does the light come from? The light downstairs comes from upstairs. You won't understand downstairs unless you've got the upstairs open and shining down upon you, giving light and meaning to the downstairs so that we have a reason for, for, for life. We have reasons for going to work. We have reasons for having children. We have reasons for what we're doing in this world. But they come from upstairs. That's where they come from. You see, that silly teenage boy that I was 
who found the causes of the Rum Rebellion in Adam, was actually not wrong. He knew better, much better, than the 20-year-old university student I became. I'd gone backwards in my understanding through the educational processes I went through. The teacher should not have criticised that young boy. He should have helped him see the secular causes for the Rum Rebellion. But he should have seen how those secular causes were spiritually informed. It's a both and, not an either or. For the spiritual causes explain the secular ones. He shouldn't have closed the door. He shouldn't have closed the ladder. He shouldn't have sealed up the ceiling so that you can't get upstairs. Instead of living in the downstairs secularist world, a meaningless, amoral, secularist world that I then became educated in. So we need to contend with this censorship that is all around about us, that closes off the upstairs from the world, so that we can value the world properly, and so that we can introduce people to the upstairs, that they know about by instinct, because God's put eternity in their hearts, but which they can only find in Jesus. For he is Jacob's ladder. He is God's house. He is the gate into heaven. Well, there we go. What am I going to do now, Stuart? Am I going to pray? Or am I going to answer questions? Or am I going to... I'm going to pray. That would be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that you have placed eternity in our hearts. We do thank and praise you that we do know intuitively and instinctively of you. But we thank you more. We thank you that you have sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. And not just into this world, but to live here, blessing this world by his life, his work, but even more, blessing us with the blessing of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. For in his death and in his resurrection, you have opened up for us the kingdom of, of heaven. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that by his death, paying for our sin, and by his resurrection, giving new life, we can live not just in the barrenness and intellectual suicide, of not knowing the beginning from the end or the end from the beginning, but we can know what you have revealed to us of eternity itself and can live rejoicing in your creation, knowing the wonder of your eternity. And we thank you and praise you this day.